Hebrews, we're finishing it up today. It's only been like four months. All right, we're in week 18, uh, and we're closing out the book of Hebrews, right? We've been in uh, the last chapter for uh, the last four weeks, because there's about 10 mini-sermons packed into this one chapter, and so we're going to close out the book of Hebrews. Uh, Before we dig into that, I just keep prolonging this thing, right? Uh, I want to make you aware of the fact that uh, starting next Sunday, we're actually going to dig into the book of Jonah. All right, in this summer, uh, we're going to be teaching through Jonah. Uh, and so I've got a couple of challenges for you. The first uh, is that every week that we're uh, teaching through this, I want you guys to read the chapter before you show up to church. Okay, so next Sunday, we are starting in Jonah chapter 1. Uh, so please, before you show up, read through Jonah chapter 1. Okay, my other challenge is bring your Bible, right? Uh, it's become pretty easy to flip open your your phone, it's become really easy to just check out what's on the screen, but here's the deal. God's word is important, and you need to be in it. Uh, And so if you're uncomfortable opening a paper book uh, and flipping through pages, we need to work on it, all right? Uh, Not that the book is holier than uh, reading the same words on your phone. Uh, It's just a good discipline to be in. Uh, And so uh, as a pastor here, I'm going to challenge you, bring your Bible. Uh, Open it up. Read out of it uh, as we're teaching through this book over the next several weeks, okay? So read uh, Jonah chapter 1 for next Sunday. Man, I feel like a teacher up here. Here's your assignment, right? Read Jonah chapter 1 and bring your Bible, all right? That's all I'm asking. It's going to be a good, good summer together. All right, here we go. Hebrews 13. Now, uh, last week, Pastor Brad I'm doing it again. Good grief. Um, We'll get into it, I promise. Last week, Pastor Brad looked at some ways that we tend to shop for churches, right? And uh, I use that word because, especially here in uh, America, we tend to have kind of a consumerist um, view on how to look for a church. And so when we're looking at churches, we're like, man, what's the worship style like? Do I like it? Is the teaching entertaining? Do they do small groups the way that uh, I like them to be done, right? Will leadership do uh, what I say? That's my favorite, right? Uh, Will it meet my needs? And what Brad said is, you know, here's the deal. The author of Hebrews actually gives us uh, qualifications or things that we should be looking for when we're looking for a church. And the first is that, uh, are the leaders of the church living lives that are worthy of imitation, Right? Is the leadership, the people that uh, are leading you, that are sitting kind of above you when it comes to this church thing, are they living a life that is uh, actually worth imitating? Do you want to follow in their footsteps? Second, is the message of the church centered on the gospel? Right? Is the gospel uh, the target that we're constantly aiming at that never moves? Is that the drum that we are constantly beating? Uh, is Jesus the name that we are continuing to say over and over and over again? Is the message of the church centered on the gospel? Does the church go outside of itself to win the loss? In the book of Hebrews, it uses the word outside of its camp. Right? Uh, are we willing to leave the four walls of our church and step into our city to step into the lives of people that do not know Jesus for their good and for the glory of God? Are we willing to invest in them to win them? And lastly, does the worship and lifestyle of its members, all of us, do we actually magnify or repel others from Jesus. When you look at your life, can you say, you know what, people find me attractive and that they want to be uh, around me, they want to be loved by me, they want to be around me because I'm so infatuated with Jesus, it kind of just leeches out into their lives. Or do they spend time around you and say, yeah, I want nothing to do with that person. They're incredibly judgmental, they make me feel like garbage, I do not feel loved when I'm around them, right? Do the members 
lives magnify or repel others from Jesus. And immediately after uh, giving us this list, the author of Hebrews actually follows it up with how we should engage with uh, each other, the family, uh, and how we should engage with the leadership of the church. All right, so here we go. We are finally getting into Hebrews 13 after I've put it off. Yes. (laughs) Hebrews 13, we're starting in verse 16. It says, and do not forget to do good and share with others for such sacrifices God is pleased Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work may be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So as the author starts to close out this chapter... Right, in verse 16, they actually say, uh, don't forget to do good and to share with others. Right, this is a sacrifice that uh, pleases God. And at the very beginning, actually a couple weeks ago I taught at the very beginning of chapter 13, the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what, love each other, continue loving each other as brothers and sisters, right, you're a family, love one another well inside the walls of the church, but let that spill out into your community, that you are to show hospitality to strangers, that you're to remember those that are in prison and to remember those that are being mistreated. Right? Are you guys loving each other well and is that spilling out into your city? Are you loving each other and are you loving those outside of the camp? And in verse 16, we see the author kind of pick this idea back up. Do good and share with others. It's a sacrifice that pleases God. Now, uh, about the words kind of, A disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to our community. That's our vision. That's where we're headed. That's what God has called us to do. And you know how we do that? By doing good and sharing with others. I mean, it's so elementary. Like, literally. Right? This is like every kindergarten teacher's motto. It is. I mean, I walked into uh, Colston to help my wife move from second grade into her fourth grade classroom, uh, and literally, you can walk into a school, and immediately, you can hear a teacher saying, are you doing the right thing, and are you sharing with others? It's like plastered all over the building. But for some reason, as we get older, this becomes way less of a focus. I think maybe we all need a kindergarten teacher to just follow us around, like, are you doing good? Are you sharing? I need it. I'm 36. It's ridiculous. Right? The same things I'm telling this little girl in my house. Like, yeah, I need that reminder too. And are you doing good or are you doing what's best for you? Sometimes they're the same, but most of the time they're not. Are you doing good or are you doing what's best for you? Are you living a life for the benefit of other people or are you living a life built around you and what you want? good stuff to wrestle through. Are you sharing with other people or are you hoarding to yourself? Now this was interesting to me. I I looked up um, contentment here in the United States and we're a little confused on what the word contentment means, okay? Uh, Based on a Gallup poll taken in February of 2020, right? So last year, right before things hit the fan. Not going to say the potty word. Going to be good today, right? Based on a poll taken in February of 2020, 90% of Americans say that they are content with where they are. 
And at the same time, the number one concern of Americans is that they don't have enough money. I think the poll should say, do you know what the meaning of contentment is? Yes or no, right? 90% of Americans say they're content with where they are, and at the same time, the number one concern of Americans is they don't have enough money. Because contentment's always about six months out, isn't it? It's always within our grasp, but it's not quite here. It's a raise away. It's a new car away. It's a bigger house away. It's a couple more thousand in that 401k. I'm almost there, but I just need a little bit more. Here's the reality. Contentment is always a present position. It's not a future aspiration. It's where you're at right now. Contentment grows out of a a proper understanding of the gospel. Hear this. If God did not turn his back on you when he was crucifying his son, he surely will not turn his back on you now. When we understand the generosity of God through the gospel, we should be the most generous people. We should be the most generous people. You know, all in, right? We've said we want to be a church that is filled with individuals that are all in on their relationship with Jesus. We want to be a church that's all in on family ministry, and we want to be a church that's all in for our community. And this wasn't just a sermon series in October. Like, this is who we are. This is where we're headed. It's who we want to be. We want to be a church that does good and shares with others. Now, tying in last week, uh, Brad was talking about uh, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God is the word uh, of his name on our lips, right? So that carries out from last week and into this week. It says, uh, do good and share with others because this is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Now, uh, most of us uh, did not grow up under the Jewish sacrificial system. We did not grow up under the old covenant where we were taking all sorts of offerings and sacrifices to the temple to make things right between us and God, but the recipients of this letter were. And so the author is very specifically using the word. These are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. All right? Under the old covenant, you have to make a sacrifice. You have burnt offerings and grain offerings and sin offerings and peace offerings and guild offerings. But under the new covenant, according to verse 15 and 16, a sacrifice that you make that is pleasing to God is that you proclaim his name, that you do good, and that you share with others. Those are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, verses, because they keep watch over you as though they must give an account. They don't say have confidence. Baltic, blind, follow the leader, uh, just do what they say. Right? If uh, this morning I told you, uh, go to Little Caesars and rob them and bring me the money. Should you follow that? Nope. No. Why? Because it stands in opposition to scripture, and two, their pizza's five bucks, and you're going to jail for barely any money. <laughs> right? The things that leadership says needs to fall in line with scripture, right? If we start throwing stuff out that's a little wacky, uh-uh. You don't have to obey that. But it says have confidence, obey, submit to their authority in what way? In matters of spiritual direction. 
Here's the deal. The teachers that you listen to, they have been placed in their position by God, and they've been given their gifting by God. Why? To keep watch over you. God speaks through those that he's called to teach his word. Now, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God spoke through a donkey, and this morning, he's talking through me. That's something to be proud about, right? But here's the reality. When my days on this earth end, I'm going to stand before the creator of the universe, and I'm going to give an account over you. That's what I was thinking about before I came out this morning. It's a responsibility. And it's something that you should not take lightly. If you find a preacher that gets up and says, man, I've got a lot to say, you should probably leave. Because the day that I've got something to say is the day I shouldn't be up here. You know, I, I grew up in church. I was there every Sunday. And at 15, I made a decision to follow Christ, okay? Grew up in church, wanted nothing to do with it. At 15, made a decision to follow Christ. From that point on, I was very committed to being a part of the local church. 15 years old. So I got involved in a, a local church. I've been a part of four different church plants, and the last one, uh, it's called Springbrook Church in Anago, Wisconsin. I literally helped start from the ground up with my buddy Tom. He's still the pastor there today. And while doing that, I, I worked at a camp and a conference center that prided itself on being a tool for the local church. And today I stand on the stage as a pastor here at Shelbyville Community Church. And in my 36 years, some of the things that I've heard people say about their pastors is atrocious. The slander, the gossip, the just straight up verbal murder of church leadership. It's horrible. And very rarely is it tied to spiritual direction, but rather personal preference. You know, there's a massive difference between uh, the message and the methods. And what I mean the message, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came, that he died for your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, and that he rose from the dead. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That never changes. That never pivots. That never weaves. That never has to change itself. It's always relevant. And that message needs to be in a closed fist by the leadership of your church. It should never move. It should never be replaced. It needs to be in a closed fist. But the methods, they sit in an open hand. Those are constantly moving. They're constantly changing. They're constantly de- these above the message. You know, if you would have asked Pastor Brad 27 years ago about the church's Facebook page and Google ads and online streaming, he probably would have stared at you because none of them existed. And today, if you ask Pastor Brad about the church's Facebook page and Google ads and online streaming, he's still going to stare at you. (laughs) And then he'll say, go talk to Craig, right? I was hired eight years ago. You guys had never had a pastor of communications before? 
I showed up and people were like, what on earth are you here for? I don't know. They're paying me. I mean, my job description literally says to better help SCC communicate the gospel and what it's done in the lives of our people. My entire job is a method used to communicate the message. Small groups, Sunday school, youth group, catechism, choirs, an organ, hymns, liturgy, a band, flashy lights and lasers, loud music, free coffee, drama teams, vacation Bible school, bounce houses, summer camp. These are all methods used to communicate the message. But this begs the question, are you more in love with the methods than the message? When it comes to how you view the leaders of your church, are you struggling to follow or submit to them because of the methods they choose or the message that they preach? Because methods tend to be more of a personal preference. The message is an absolute. You know, God has ordained the church so that we are his instruments here on earth, but that doesn't mean that it's led by perfect people. I know I'm not. I know our elders aren't. I sit in staff meeting. They for sure aren't. As leaders are going to do things and make decisions that you don't like, they're going to mess up, right? The title of pastor does not remove my sinful nature. Scriptures don't say that you have to absolutely love everything that they do, but have confidence and submit. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Give your leadership the benefit of the doubt until they prove that they aren't trustworthy or they prove that they are in violation of Scripture. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking like, man, this is pretty self-serving, right? The guy with the mic is up there telling me to listen to him. You're good. And for my good, because I sit under authority too. For thousands of years, the Bible has been calling its readers to obey and submit to its readers. And for thousands of years, the Bible's been offending people, calling us to do things that we don't naturally want to do. This is one of them. And the author goes one step further. He says, not only are you to obey and submit to your leaders, but you're supposed to pray for them. Verse 18, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and we desire to live honorably in every way. Man, I love this. Written by a pastor, begging as a pastor. Here's the deal. Your pastoral team should be humble enough to know that they need God's help. Brad say all the time is, I have nothing to offer this church if I'm not hearing his voice. And we prayed for Pastor Brandon before he stepped out for his sabbatical. And the one thing he asked for prayer for was that he would hear God's voice. what it's worth, I see this in our leadership on a daily basis. And I'm grateful to be a part of that. Please pray for your leaders. Because we're leading you. We need all the prayer we can get. Right? Now we're getting into this beautiful benediction, this beautiful closing. Verse 20. It says, now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good. You know, in the ancient world, 
Addictions were uh, incredibly important as a way to end an address or to write uh, end a letter. And so in this Jewish context, it's incredibly uh, called this series, Jesus is Better, right? And that's literally what this author has been doing uh, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, saying Jesus is better and here's my confidence in that. You know, we believe that God created the world we believe that God created the world good and pure. It actually says in Genesis when he got done, day after day, it said, uh, God said, it is good. And then he made man and he said, it is very good. God created everything to be good and to be pure and to be in right relationship with him. And a few chapters later, we see that Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. And by doing that, they broke their relationship with him. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, people have been trying to make that right. Been trying to work and fix and do and give and pray and sacrifice enough to make that relationship right again. And that Christ showed up on the scene and he loved people well and ultimately he hung on a cross and he died. And by doing so, he actually paid the penalty for our sin, for our disobedience. That Christ did something that we could not do for ourselves. And that three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death and restoring relationship between God and man, which is how we can read words that say the God of peace because we are no longer enemies of God. The God of peace Because of Jesus, we can know the God of peace. It's God's character towards those who are in Christ because of Jesus' work on our behalf. We now know that God is a God of peace. We don't have to hope that God's going to respond to us with peace. All right, if it was up to us to achieve peace with God, we would uh, continue to be eternal enemies, right? We can thank God that Christ has achieved that peace for us. Now here's the deal. A lot of times in evangelical churches, even in our church, we tend to focus on Jesus. This isn't bad, right? Jesus is good. Jesus did a lot for us. We should be grateful for us. But uh, we tend to make Jesus the hero, that Jesus saved the day. And we're literally in a series called Jesus is Better. But what can happen is at times we can take God the Father, right, one of the other persons of the Trinity, and we can uh, turn him into this big, bad, scary, vengeful God. And he's evil and full of wrath, and that Jesus is the good, holy, merciful, grace-filled. The very God that created everything in perfect peace and unity, the very God that was wronged by his creation, the very God that continually chased his people, pointing them to something better, the very God that put into place a way for people to keep a relationship with him, knowing that his creation desperately needed it, even though they didn't want it. The very God that sent his son into the mess of his broken creation, the very God that sacrificed his son on our behalf, the very God that we were enemies with, defeated death by raising his son so that we can spend eternity with him that he did all of that for you. And he did it through the blood of the eternal covenant. 
We've been using this word covenant a lot lately, right? You've got the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was a way that God had put into place where the people of Israel could maintain right relationship with him, right? You sin, you offer up something uh, as a punishment in your place. Here's all these rules and laws that you should obey so that you're still in right standing with me. God created this whole system so that they could uh, maintain right relationship with him. And here's the deal. It was such a burden. It was impossible, And he did it for a reason, so that through the gift of Jesus Christ, we don't have to do any of that anymore. He put into place a new covenant, an eternal covenant, one that doesn't make you go to the temple and sacrifice something every week. Nah, Jesus did it forever. It's done. Through his work on the cross, it is an eternal covenant. This is an everlasting covenant, the purpose for which God made the world, right? To demonstrate his glory in saving sinners by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What's beautiful is the author, as he's writing this, he could have given Jesus a million different titles, and the one that he chose was the great shepherd of the sheep. What a beautiful title. Because sheep are aimless, vulnerable creatures that desperately need someone to take care of them. It's us. We are his sheep. And Jesus' love for his sheep runs so deep that he gave himself up for us. Now may the God of peace, through the shepherd that spilled his blood and raised him from the dead for his sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. I love this. Verse 21, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the deal. Our aim as Christians should be to do what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. That through our own efforts, it's nothing. But through Jesus Christ, it's everything. Equip means to prepare for use, right? That through all of the work that he has done for us, he's actually equipping us for the very good things that he's calling us to go do. You know, something that uh, I hear, especially on mission trips, but I I hear it on a regular basis, or people will say, man, I just, I don't know what his will is for my life. And there's this belief that unless you're on staff at a church or you're working in ministry full-time, that you're clearly not doing his will. And that's not true. Not at all. Here's the deal. I would gladly walk off this stage and go get a job on a factory line because it's way, way, way less pressure than standing up here and talking to a room full of people. The will of God is that we love him and that we love other people. Can you do that working at McDonald's? Yeah. Can you do that working in an elementary school? What about bagging groceries? Absolutely. As an engineer? Yeah. As a police officer? Yep. As a judge? As a lawyer? I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on. Your vocation is not necessarily his will. Sometimes your vocation falls in line with doing things such as being a pastor at a church or a missionary to another country. But Christ's death on the cross is preparing us for the good works that he has for us. No matter what you do for work, 
no matter what state you live in, no matter what kind of family life you have. He's preparing you to love him and to love other people. And on the Great Commission, and I'm going to throw it in there, right? It's something that Jesus called all of his disciples to go do, that they would preach the gospel to all nations and people. That means going and preaching the gospel to people that are different than you. So many of us think like, oh, if I'm going to go and I'm going to preach to all nations, that means I need to get on a plane or a boat and I need to go to another country. Guys, there's a lot of tribes here in the United States. There's a lot of tribes that are unreached here in the United States. And it's our responsibility to go and to preach the gospel to them. That's why we're going to Indiana State to go reach the tribe of college students. That's why we're going to Chicago to see the gospel preached to inner city youth. It's why we go to Brazil. It's why we go to Texas. It's why we do missions in general. That's why we're saying, hey, we want to take hope and healing out into our community to preach the gospel to all nations. Baptizing new believers. Guys, this is something that blows me away. We're a church of, I don't know, 600, 650, 700, depends. If everybody shows up, probably a billion. If nobody shows up, there's still 300 of you. We baptize more people at our church than any church I've been a part of. And I've been a a part of itty-bitty tiny churches where the offering was four cents, and I've been a part of big old, like, 20,000 people churches. And I see more folks get dunked in our church than any church I've been a part of. Praise God. The first baptism that I was here for I think a lot of people kind of remember this, right? Brad just gave a call. If you want to get baptized, we got shirts, we got shorts, come and do it. And we had like 45, 47 people come up and get dunked. My first baptism here, and I was like, what is happening at this church? (laughs) Right? Because I'm sitting in staff meeting, and they're like, all right, we got three. Who's doing first service and who's doing second? And then the waves just kept coming. Don't take lightly the fact that God is doing that work here in our church. Don't take it lightly, right? I know it's a fun day. We get to celebrate. We get to hoot and holler. That's great, but don't take that lightly. There's some much, much, much larger churches that have incredibly famous pastors with lots of books and lots of money through the sales of sermon series and all sorts of stuff. And when I've looked at their annual report, And how many people have gotten baptized, it's minuscule in comparison to what he's doing here. Fame doesn't always mean that God's at work doing the very things he's doing here, okay? You're a part of an incredibly important church in the state of Indiana, in the city of Shelbyville, okay? Don't take that lightly. Again, pray for your leaders. Why? So that that'll keep going on. You should be so encouraged by the work that is happening that you're like, man, I just can't help but pray for the leadership because they're constantly facing new challenges. I remember talking to Brad and he's like, man, there came a point where we had like so many people showing up, I had no idea what to do. What a problem. Dude, I've been spinning my wheels for like four months trying to figure out a legal structure for this shop, right? Because making money and being a nonprofit don't exactly go hand in hand. As we're doing more and more in the community, we need more and more help. We need more and more wisdom. Man, because I'm running into things I've never dealt with before in my life. 
We need your prayers. And lastly, you know, disciple those that receive Christ, right? Preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing new believers and discipling those who receive Christ. It's the will of God, man, that we would love him and that we would love other people and we would do these things. You're all invited into that. And for those that have made a decision to follow Christ, it actually says that he's equipping you to do that work. I want to invite the band up as we get ready to close. You know, when we started this series, it was in the beginning of February. Much more comfortable temperatures. Just saying. It's been a while. We started this on February 7th, and Pastor Lee actually opened the series, and he asked the question, what do you see as being better than Jesus? And I think it's fitting that as we close out 18 weeks of digging into this book, we ask the question again, what in your life do you see as being better than Jesus? We need to take... A moment and just reflect on that question. What do you have going on today that you think is better than Jesus? What current circumstance do you find yourself in that you're thinking, man, this is bigger or better than Jesus? What life altering decision do you my prayer is that as we close out the book of Hebrews, that we would be a church that sees Jesus as better. Like the author of Hebrews, that we too would see Jesus as better. And that after 18 weeks, that we would see that Jesus is better than the prophets, that he's better than the angels, that Jesus is better than Moses that he is a better Sabbath, that he is a better high priest, that Jesus offers a better covenant, that Jesus is a better sacrifice, that Jesus provides a better salvation, that Jesus is better than material wealth, that he's better than relationships, that Jesus is better than sexual freedom, that Jesus is better than comfort and ease. May we be a church that has absolute confidence that Jesus is better. Amen? Let's stand. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's respond.